Okay, well, this lecture today is about disease transitions. And previous lectures have looked at infectious disease. In a sense, we're going across now to uh, chronic disease. Um, but in order to make that move from one to the other, um, we need to think about how patterns of disease have changed in the world. So I'm going to talk about um, epidemiological transition um, as a construct. Then I'll talk about dual burden of disease, because there are many places like India, for example, that are experiencing both chronic disease and infectious disease uh, simultaneously in the same places, sometimes in the same, uh, uh, sometimes in the same households. Um, then I'm going to talk about inequality and how this um, actually makes how one looks at these things more complex. And then um, finally, I'm going to talk about um, uh, how one might critique transition. So most broadly, this is the, the shift from a pattern of non-communicable disease being displaced by infectious disease uh, with mortality rates declining in most places. Uh, but, of course, nobody lives forever and people have to die of something. So, of course, um, there'll be a displacement of, of infectious disease uh, with communicable diseases. This is the, 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 the classical epidemiological transition uh, formulation. Uh, <clears throat> to take the example of the UK, there was a <clears throat> rapid decline in uh, mortality from a range of infectious diseases. This one is given for tuberculosis. <clears throat> but uh, um, declines in, in mortality rates have been, uh, have been quite significant. Before um, transitions, what's so-called um, uh, demographic transition, fertility transition between around the 1870s and 1930s, where fertility rates declined from over four per family to around two per family. So in a sense, the sort of modern pattern of, 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 uh, <coughs> of, of population in, in, in the Western nations. So decline in, in mortality um, due, to, due to control of infectious disease through the public health movement. Um, the emergence of chronic disease really is something that took off from about the 1950s. And there would be a period, I suppose, from the early 1920s to around the 1950s where it would seemingly infectious disease is going down, going down, going down. More and more measures are, are in place to, to control um, infectious disease, as with tuberculosis. <coughs> One of the things that... Uh, uh, put tuberculosis more or less to bed by the time um, in, uh, in the UK by the by the 1960s was 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 social housing and and reducing crowding in families. Now, of course, we know it's all been resurgent, and I'll come back to that point uh, that point later. But you know, in the US, you know, prosperity was in place perhaps a good 20 or 30 years prior to, to, to most parts of Europe. Europe went through a horrible period of reconstruction after World War II, and it was really only in the 1960s with um, real wages starting to increase dramatically uh, relative to uh, 1910 levels in this case. Um, with, uh, with, with, with high levels of prosperity came increasing levels of, of chronic disease. Um, first presented in places like the United States and Finland uh, with, with cardiovascular disease, but with other, with, but with other disorders as well. <coughs> Are they diseases of prosperity? 
Well, the epidemiological transition has been formulated in this way, that in the developing world now, the changes that are happening um, towards increasing prosperity, decline in fertility rates, um, control of infectious disease and so on, has been much more dramatic than it was in the UK. It was happening much faster. Uh, a common pattern is this kind of wave upon wave of change. The first wave is trauma. The second wave seems to be non-insulin dependent diabetes. The third wave is coronary heart disease. And the fourth wave, fourth wave is, uh, is, is cancer. Why trauma? Uh, this particular illustration is real. Um, I took a picture of an airstrip in Papua New Guinea. Uh, beware of propellers. Um, okay, where are you going to find a propeller? Usually on a grass airstrip in the middle of nowhere, people think planes are cool. Um, they don't realise that there are kind of health and safety procedures that surround aeroplanes, as with other kinds of machinery. Then they walk out and walk straight into a propeller and whoa, you know, they've lost their right hand. Um, and, and obviously, this has happened. Um, enough for there to be a sign. So, <clears throat> what's the most dangerous thing that an anthropologist can do? In relation to standardised mortality rates of anthropologists. Yeah? Well, that's one thing, yeah. More dangerous, actually, turn up in a developing country hop on a motorbike without a helmet, never having used a motorbike before, and off you go. Without a driving test, without anything, off you go. Or you hop in the back of a land cruiser with everybody else, without strapping yourself with a safety belt, along rugged roads, mountain roads that weave sideways and all over the place, and uh, you can understand the risk. The risk is that you let go of all your usual scruples when you go somewhere else because, of course, you become immortal when you turn up in Kenya and, and you do like everybody else does. Um, you know, anthropologists can be as stupid as everybody else, really, sometimes stupider. So that's the most common, common cause of, of death of anthropologists, is hopping into motor vehicles and uh, behaving badly in, them, um, in, in, in places they don't know. Uh, ahead of everything else. So, what happens in the developing world now? Trauma is the first thing. Because as people get more money, they move from shoe leather to bicycle, from bicycle to motorbike, from motorbike to motor car. Um, often in comparatively unregulated circumstances. Here we look at the rules and regulations about riding bicycles and driving motor cars and motorbikes along the streets. It's a tightly regulated environment that maintains low levels of mortality relative to the fact that when you get into a car, you are ostensibly steering a missile which, with, with, with great lethal potential. Um, so that's why trauma comes up first. Then the next wave is usually type 2 diabetes. Then the next wave is usually cardiovascular disease. And the next wave is usually cancer. Usually with a kind of uh, 10 to 15 year gap between those waves as they, as they increase. So there seems to be a progressivism to it. Um, the, the progressivist scheme that's been put forward by uh, um, uh, an epidemiologist called Omron 
uh, was that there are different stages of epidemiological transition. But first of all, you know, there is high mortality, high infectious disease epidemics, little population growth because infectious disease is keeping population down, life expectancy is low, and so, uh, so everything is kept in check uh, through having many children um, that don't live very long because most of them, most of them die. Then across time, these pandemics decline. There are fewer epidemics, less infectious disease, appearance of slow rise of chronic disease. And, and so this is the next, uh, the next stage. And then the next one is degenerative and, and, and human-made diseases that um, increasingly, as uh, societies control um, how they do things, then uh, uh, we're down to uh, things that are, are, are degenerative and, and, and less environmental. We'll talk about how this is a fiction very shortly, but, uh, but first of all, it's important to lay out how these things, how these things look. Uh, the world is indeed in transition. Everything is in change. Everything is in flux. Uh, the first time I went to Bangladesh uh, was in the 1980s. Uh, the last time I went to Bangladesh was just three or four years ago. My, how the place is changing. Suddenly there is more prosperity. Even at the lowest level, at the dollar-a-day level, there's increased prosperity. Those small changes make a huge, huge difference. Uh, there's also transition mania that I've mentioned, demographic transition. Um, I've mentioned epidemiological transition. Barry Popkin um, at the University of North Carolina has developed the theme of nutrition transition. All of these things working together against the background of globalization, that there are increased global forces that, for example, with respect to diet, um, in Mexico there's less control of the food system because there's huge influx from the United States. And World Trade Organization legislation uh, has it that food moves across boundaries. And so there's less control over, over lo local food systems, for example. <laughs> Population aging, there are more people living to, to an older age. And of course, that changes disease patterns because infectious diseases were more uh, an issue with, with young children. As fertility rates come down, then there are fewer children, more older people. More older people are more likely to develop cancer, for example. And, and, and so it goes on. Um, what are the, the kinds of changes? Things that have been considered luxuries become everyday things. This is a general trope through much of, sort of e recent economic development. Something can be cool, new, and, uh, and, and, and can confer status, and within 10 years' time, everybody has it. The motor car can, could, you know, just having a motor car in one place could confer status, but when then, at some stage, everybody has a motor car, it becomes ordinary, it becomes a way of life. From high status to being everyday life. Uh, with transportation, again, from, from shoe leather to bicycle to motorbike to motor car, um, from uh, bare feet to having animal-driven driven carts to having tractors. And, you know, in places like India, for example, in recent years, um, they've developed the people's motor car that will sell for a price that most Indians should be able to afford. The last time I was in Calcutta, it took two and a half hours in a taxi to, to drive 15 miles. 15 miles? 
Yeah. The closer we got to the centre of Calcutta, the less things moved. Nothing was moving. Now, if you increase the amount, the number of motor cars in Calcutta by 25%, things would still not be moving. It means that Calcutta, to be able to accommodate motor cars, needs to undergo radical transformations of the kind it hasn't had to undergo for a long, long time. Imagine, for example, the centre of Oxford being the centre of Calcutta. And in order to accommodate more of these motor cars, you really need to drive through those places, open up the roads, knock down a lot of old buildings, and in Calcutta's case, dispossess a lot of very poor people from where they are. A level of social engineering that would probably not be possible to be undertaken now. It was undertaken in places like London in the 19th century, for example, undertaken in Paris, for example, with the, you know, the clearance of central Paris and the building of the boulevards. Many, many, many thousands of poor people lost their homes in order, in order for those things to be, to be developed. Um, these are the processes in terms of, of town planning that, 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 that cities like Calcutta have to go through as well. With respect to food, from traditional to modern, from local to distant also. Um, this is in India. Go down to the street market. These people have to come in on their bicycles and, their, and, and bring their carts from, from nearby rural areas and bring their vegetables up to the city. There's a similar kind of system in New York City as well, in that the market gardeners, the Chinese market gardeners who were working in New Jersey in the 19th century, were doing a similar kind of thing. One of the reasons why New York City has a particularly good um, urban food supply is down to that particular piece of history. That it, and you can say the same about Seattle as well, that there are, you know, there are local systems that were developed you know, often a hundred years ago, but still persist in some form to the present day. So we cannot sort of neglect those histories. But what happens, again, okay, this, is, this is India. What happens when fruit from the streets becomes fruit on the supermarket shelf? It needs to be packaged. It needs to be taken long distances. The uh, amount of transportation needed to be able to bring this stuff to, 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 to the shelf increases. Then, of course, there are, jar, uh, there are jars and there are cans which require resources and which can allow goods to be break, taken over longer and longer distances. Now, of course, this kind of process facilitates globalization and facilitates global food systems because the street market can only be a local system um, unless you have, find ways of cheating it, which is through refrigeration, for, for example. So um, those kinds of moves, moves make a big change. In terms of nutrition transition, from traditional to modern eating, to eating in a fast chicken place in Korea, to cuisines that use lots of dishes, from moving and eating on the run. Um, and moving from subsistence to commodity, when things move from being um, something um, that uh, you, 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 you obtain in the local environment to becoming a commodity that can be bought and sold things that can be used and traded or can be used in gifting then become, then become commodity. Um, this particular slide is a, is a heritage slide which shows uh, uh, the kind of strip land you see in many, many cities where you have things like food reduced to fuel in many ways. You, you know, fill up your car with petrol, then you fill up your stomach with a Wendy burger or a 
or a, a McDonald's burger, or whatever it is. And, and the systems of consuming food become automated in the same way that, that, that obtaining fuel becomes automated. And you know, even the best person in the world falls prey to these kinds of systems. I mean, when my children were young, and we were in Perth in Western Australia, you want to take your kids from your school to their tennis. They are hungry. What do you do? You stop at one of these places. You fill them up, you keep them moving. And, you know, with the best of all intentions, you still fall susceptible to these things. Okay, there, there are interactions between these different kinds of transitions. Uh, in addition to epidemiological, nutrition, demographic transitions, there are also economic changes and transitions. And a big question is, is there class convergence of nations under free market conditions and the democratic <coughs> institutions? That is, are the institutions that govern all of these practices that relate to health, are they converging across uh, all nations? There is an assumption that if everybody embraces capitalism, then they'll embrace the institutions of democracy that go with capitalism, and therefore it becomes a, a, a relatively homogenous way of, of, of a, a homogenous market for things, to, for things to develop. The big outlier, of course, is China, because nobody has any real sense of whether China is converging with the West or not. Sometimes it seems yes, sometimes it seems no. It's really, and really it will be for China to determine whether this is indeed the model that's persisting. But there's an assumption underpinning epidemiological transition, nutrition transition, and so on, that there is this economic convergence on some other way. And of course, associated with economic change is the idea of lifestyles, and that's a very weak construct. Uh, what are lifestyles? They're cultures of consumption. Where do they emerge? There were American constructs um, that were uh, attempts to uh, explain how people change how they live. You know, how you take personal responsibility and for, for your life and how you define yourself through the ways that you consume. And so um, it's very uh, focused on individualism and urbanism and status. And so um, the cultures of consumption that emerge around lifestyle are also things that see uh, that, that, that also uh, see salience in economic change. So as people become more wealthy, then there's more potential for, uh, for, 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 for status elaboration, for example, and status distinction. And of course, Bourdieu has written a lot about this. The stages of, 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 um, of transition I take these three transitions, demographic, epidemiological, nutrition transition, high fertility, high infectious disease, high undernutrition, receding famine, receding pestilence, reduced mortality. Focus on famine alleviation, focus on family planning, reduced fertility, chronic diseases predominate, diet-related non-communicable diseases predominate. So all of these have the same kind of progressivist scheme. This is where, where things will go. Now, of course... The idea at the end is that we will achieve nirvana. We will achieve a heavenly state where everything is perfect because um, there will be a focus on healthy aging, a spatial redistribution where you know old people can live well as long as they want and then they'll drop down dead when things are ready. 
Um, there'll be a focus on medical intervention, behavioral change. There'll be people will self-regulate their diets and they'll self-regulate their disease exposures. And of course, that's where, all, where we're all going, isn't it? Yeah, I knew you'd agree. Um, with increasing length of life, the causes of death also change. So as people get older, higher likelihood of cancer. Cardiovascular disease seems to cluster in the age groups um, uh, mid-50s to, to, to late-60s, um, and so on. So population structure is also contributes to this. In respect of the relationship between um, infectious disease and chronic disease, you can look at maps like ones produced by the World Bank that uh, give the total numbers of deaths due to communicable diseases, due to chronic diseases, and so on. And it's interesting that it's only in the lowest, if you divide up the world into four quartiles of income on average, it's only in the lowest income countries that communicable diseases uh, remain um, higher than, uh, than, than chronic diseases. Even in lower middle income countries, chronic diseases are responsible for, for more deaths than infectious diseases. Chronic diseases have, are now um, have taken over as causes of death, even in, in most of the developing world. So in this chart, you've got communicable diseases uh, down here, cardiovascular disease, cancer, uh, diabetes, current respiratory diseases, um, um, attributed, uh, attribute, uh, 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 being responsible for, for more deaths than, uh, than communicable diseases. What uh, are the processes um, that have been, have been looked at in, in epidemiologically in, uh, in, in, in relation to this? Well, of course, at the end, we've got the outcomes, which are a number of chronic, main chronic diseases, heart disease, stroke, cancer, chronic respiratory diseases, diabetes. And at the other end, you've got underlying factors like socioeconomic factors, cultural, political, and environmental determinants. And among these, there are big things that no local force can control. Globalization is out of control, and it's out of the control of any particular government. Um, if any particular government claims it can do something, it can't last very long. Um, I'll give an example. I've used Mexico once, I'll use Mexico again. Um, um, with the NAFTA agreement, um, which, which, which uh, assures free trade between the United States, Canada, and Mexico, for example. Uh, Mexico tried to uh, control the influx of high fructose corn syrup um, into, into the country. Um, the United States claimed this was illegal and, and took them to the World, uh, World Trade Organization and the US won. So after trying to control and successfully controlling for a few years the influx of high fructose corn syrup, it was then, it was then revoked and, and so, the, 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 so the market is wide open. That is, any country can challenge uh, a, 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 a protectionist uh, approach. And even the European Union is, is struggles to be able to uh, control its own sort of internal, uh, internal economy in, in, in this way. And then, uh, in relation to this, what can be changed? Much of this falls down onto individuals. Diet, physical inactivity, tobacco use. What a big structural, huge, among the biggest structural forces you can imagine, um, then there's an expectation that individuals should be able to respond to those global forces at an individual level and exert control. 
Now, of course, there's a market rationalism to that, because you know, if we're wise and make rational choices, we will make choices for health. If everybody does the same thing, we will all behave rationally and the market will respond to it. So the idea is that individuals should then um, be able to, as a mass, be able to control these global forces through these, through these, through these issues. Now, of course, you can see the flaws, uh, because, uh, uh, because it doesn't quite work like that. Uh, the intermediate risk factors. Blood pressure, blood glucose, abnormal blood lipids, overweight and obesity are then um, other factors to be worked on to be able to reduce the levels of these. Now, of course, each of these has got feedback loops. This is a linear process. Anybody who came to Harry Rutter's talk yesterday will know that you know, while epidemiologists talk in linear terms and the control and uh, eradication of chronic disease is often talked in comparatively linear terms, actually they are complex looping mechanisms that feed back on each other. Change one thing, something else will change. Change something else, something else again will change, often in ways that can't be predicted. So this kind of linear scheme is easy as a framework to understand what the main issues are. There are looping effects among all of these. Even within any of these particular, uh, particular domains, there are looping effects. Looping effects between globalization and urbanization. Looping effects between unhealthy diet, physical activity, and tobacco use. Looping effects between overweight and obesity, blood lipids, blood glucose, blood pressure. Um, so all of those, within each other's domains, there are looping. And then across the domains, there's further looping. So um, it really means that there's considerable complexity. Um, a north-south divide with respect to disease. There's a way of talking about disease that um, suggests that chronic disease is in the, in, the, in the north and infectious disease in the south. But actually, all of this um, is dissolving. Um, as I've already said, chronic disease is a major killer in the world um, and um, infectious disease is resurgent in the, in the, in the so-called uh, developed world. What are the relationships across country between income and life expectancy then? If people earn more money, can they expect to live longer? Can they expect to live healthier lives? The simplest way of looking at this is to just look at relationships between life expectancy and income per capita. Um, this is a chart that was put together by Wilkinson um, in uh, uh, looking at... Um, the curvilinear relationship in 1990, in, this, in the top instance, uh, between, between income and how long you can expect to live. Now, it's a curvilinear relationship which shows that um, the biggest gains in health and the biggest gains in longevity um, come at the very, very lowest level. So the poorest people serve to gain most by even tiny increases in income. As you get wealthier, as you enter Europe, Australia, the United States, Canada, and so on, where at the top here, uh, large amounts of income increase don't result in very much further increase in health. So the big increases in health come at small increases in uh, income. But what is curious about this particular work is that this curve is true whether you're talking about 1900, about 1930, 
about 1960, about 1990, about 2010, the curve is the same, except <coughs> it becomes higher and higher the further up you go. Now that's curious. Why should that be? I mean, this is this is capping income to a level um, to to the 19, uh, 1991 level for all of these. They're saying that this is real income for all of, uh, at, at, at all at all of these times. So the same, same level of income buys more life expectancy across time. The big intervening factor is, of course, primary health care. Um, that um, um, health care and health intervention among the most common um, diseases and disorders gets cheaper. So the simplest things can be controlled more cheaply. The most common things can be controlled more cheaply. And so life expectancy uh, relative to income has, has increased progressively. So initially you see you know, the changes that happened in the Western countries then being outsourced, if you will, or extended into, into so-called developing countries. Cheap technologies start to be used in those places and they start to show real declines in, uh, uh, in mortality rates. Something simple as barefoot doctor scheme in China in the 1960s, 1970s, um, the extension of that to primary healthcare workers in developing countries, so simple aid posts where you have somebody who's trained to recognize a fever and to give chloroquine tablets for malaria, to recognize diarrhea and give oral rehydration for diarrhea, can have a huge impact in the community. Those individuals don't need to know a huge amount. They need to know what they know and treat what they know. If it doesn't work, they refer it. But in so doing, they could probably deal with the majority of the disease that's presented to them in their particular context. That has, that has huge, huge impacts. Uh, one of the things that complicates these relationships is inequality. Um, I've shown inequality among nations, across nations just now, that the wealthier nations have greater life expectancy and better health, to be expected. They have better technologies as well, to be expected. The relationship is curvilinear. At the very extreme, it doesn't matter how wealthy you are, you'll still get, people still have to die. Um, but within societies, there are great relationships between, uh, uh, between, uh, between health and inequality. Um, between employment grade, with car ownership, with house tenure, with education level, with income level, with social class. Uh, the economic threshold above which additional income has little impact on, on health outcomes also varies across countries because it's a reflection of the social stratification, economic stratification in that society, and the penetration of healthcare in that society. And at this stage, it starts to become politicized because, of course, you know, there are things like nationalized health and the, you know, and, 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 uh, the, uh, the political will to have, uh, to have a, a socialized medicine versus, versus, uh, versus, uh, versus privatized medicine. And that debate continues in all places where these things are in place. You know, in Sweden, they're talking about how they can make their healthcare system cheaper because you know, they are struggling 
even at 70% taxation, they're struggling to, uh, uh, to, to, to maintain uh, all those health services that, uh, that, that they have. And of course, health services are expensive and become increasingly expensive because any technology, health technology, starts off as a privileged good in research and then becomes a common good because once you have it, how can you deny people having it? So then you extend that technology. Then it becomes an accepted thing. As with all of those items of consumption that I mentioned earlier. There's also an inversion of disease patterns. Um, in European countries, North America, Australia, the diseases of the rich become the diseases of the poor. At some stage, there's an inversion because the rich um, know about um, uh, maintaining their health and maintaining um, a, a good habitus that um, it then becomes a matter of having the resources to be able to uh, maintain uh, healthy, uh, healthy patterns. There's also geographical variation with respect to, 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 to inequality. That these conceptualizations about um, socioeconomic status, economic status, how much you earn, how much education you have, um, can, can vary enormously geographically. You can compare North Oxford, where we sit now, which is comparatively prosperous, to a place called Blackbird Lees on the other side of Oxford, which I imagine most of you have not gone to. And there were riots, there have been riots in Blackbird Lees. When Britain had, goes through its riots every, every generation or so, um, it's a traditional response to, to, to injustice in this country. And when, when, when there are riots uh, in, uh, in Oxford, they all happen in Blackbird Lees. It's the most underprivileged part of Oxford. You won't have seen it. There's great diversity in between the people who live in North Oxford and the people who live in Blackbird Lees. And sometimes you won't even see those people. That's, 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 that's part of the issue. Within London, um, life expectancy in Westminster around the Houses of Parliament, that really sort of nice, lovely, posh-looking bit of London, is about 78 and a half years. If you go to Canning Town, Canary Wharf is where the tall buildings are, a uh, new business centre in the last 20 years or so that has developed in, in a poorer London. Um, just north of here is where the Olympic Village is, for example. The centre of London is kind of central gravity is shifting in this direction. Canning Town remains a small part, a, a poor, a, a comparatively poor part of London, where life expectancy is good five years shorter than it is even if you go to Westminster. But you can also say that even travelling five miles, you find a similar difference in life expectancy between those two places. So, what are the health correlates of social and economic status? Um, the embodiment and health ideals. Um, are often mirrored in wealthier classes. So maintaining good health and a high-status body is expensive in time, in time and money. If you are poor, if you are time poor, if you have young children, how much time can you afford to spend in thinking about yourself? How much time do you spend in terms of thinking about uh, uh, making sure that you are both healthy and look good? And of course, these things then relate, relate to employment status and they relate to a whole range of other things that keep certain kinds of people in the place where they are. Um, 
social cohesion, social capital, the Jews' idea of social capital, and positive health outcomes. Regardless of income, if people are well-connected, um, they have better health outcomes. There are simple things like, my son is sick, um, can I call on a neighbour to look after him on the day that I need to be um, doing something? So I need to go out to work, but can I ask somebody to come out to come look after my children? On the understanding that I will do the same in reciprocation if the same thing happens. I live in a village where you know, my children are, I think, at least physically grown up. Um, they are... Um, and across the time that they were growing up, there's very good social cohesion in, in that sense. You could say, well, look, you know, you, su you suddenly find you've got three children at home on the day you're expected to do work. And I'm trying to do my writing. No, no, I don't have these children because these children are doing this and, and they're ill and the parents need to do that. But, you know, that ensures that, you know, people look after each other. So irrespective of level of income, social capital has, has very, very positive, positive health outcomes. Confounders with, 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 these, with these issues are uh, social and economic mobility. And that is, you know, if you're taller, you're more likely to be socially mobile, upwardly socially, mo socially mobile, in this country, in Germany, certainly, because it's been demonstrated, than if you're shorter. Um, that there are ways of breaking out of these, these sets, of, sets of relationships. Okay, uh, going back to um, between countries, what kinds of, of differences do you see in terms of income inequality? Life expectancy is certainly shorter um, in the places that have higher income inequality. Mortality rates are also higher in more unequal countries. So mortality rates, infant deaths per thousand life births, the discrepancies, you know, the number of live deaths now is actually very small because it's seven per, thou per, per thousand live births down to, down to around three per thousand live births. But you can see at the top of the US, down at the bottom, uh, bottom of Japan. And arguably you can say, well, the difference between the US and Japan is not uh, due to differences in te technology and technological inputs. How can you explain Singapore? So, so again. How can you explain Singapore? It's the highest inequality in the world. I can't, I really can't. <laughs> I really can't. Um, again, obesity shows similar kinds, of, similar kinds of relationships, but I will look it up. It's been a long time since I've been in Singapore. <laughs> okay, critiquing transition. Uh, I've given you a lot about, about, about transition, but is it inevitable? And is it historical? Is it the kind of process that will inevitably go to a particular kind of end. Um, is it a kind of schema that one could put out for a lot of things and say these are the kinds of, you know, kinds of trends you would expect to see in particular places, that having seen it happen in this way, uh, let's say, in England and the United States, you would expect the same things to happen in India and China, for example. Um, as I've said, there's a transition mania. There are many, many people talking about transition. It's an exciting idea. Things are changing. And it's also exciting to think that these things can be controlled, that you can say these things fit into a, a progressive scheme. Are there endpoints? Well, at the moment, there aren't any endpoints because there are many challenges to transition. 
one of them is inequality, as I've mentioned, that the patterns of inequality mean that there are um, different groups within any society, the, the uh, industrialised society, for example, industrialising society, for example, who will be going through this transition at different phases, at different paces. You'd have the middle class in India, you'd say, well, firmly, you know, they're globally connected, um, they are becoming increasingly prosperous, they have very high levels of high rates of, of type 2 diabetes, um, very sophisticated. Now many live in gated communities in their cities so they can live like their relatives in the United States and Canada, for example, live. Um, cheat by jowl with the poor people who live on the streets who uh, see very little of this, of, this, uh, of, this, uh, uh, of this wealth and of this transition. And of course, as economic change goes on, it drives inequality. So economic prosperity in itself is driving more inequality. So you say, well, the argument has been that if everybody, you know, if, if, if there's more prosperity, yes, the richest are going to get even richer, but the poorest will get you know, wealthy enough to start dragging them off the floor. Is that a good argument or not? I've got my own views, but I'm not sure, you know, I should necessarily want to share them. There's economic stagnation. Does this all work in recession? And of course, we have resurgent infection, as we all know. And finally, do we run the risk of running out of stuff? Is there enough stuff to bring China, for example, to the same level of prosperity and health as the United States, every single citizen? The answer is no. There isn't enough stuff to be able to make every Chinese citizen uh, equally um, uh, uh, economically prosperous to, 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 to an American. You have to ask the question, of course, is stuff important in this relationship as well? Let's skip that. The question about the relationships between demographic transition, epidemiological transition, nutrition transition. In these different stages, when there's a, for example, focus on famine and alleviation of famine, improving food security and so on, what confounds that is inequality. What confounds that also is warfare. Warfare can, can destroy a country. Um, it can destroy a country's agriculture for a generation. Simply putting mines in fields ensures that. Um, many years ago, 1995 in fact, I was at a, a conference, a workshop on a beautiful island in, off the coast of Croatia, and I missed my bus going back to Split Airport. And I had a connecting flight in Zagreb. And Somebody stopped. I just stood in the middle of the road and said, just either kill me or give me a lift. Somebody, I didn't get killed, somebody gave me a lift. And he said, well, I'm going to Zygon. I said, that's splendid. You are saving, you're saving my life. Anyway, he's driving very, very, very quickly. And, and as we were driving very, very quickly, we got stopped by the police. And I poured out my story, took out my passport and said, please, please, I need to get to the other side. No, 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 no. He said, no, no. This side, mines. This side, mines. Go slowly, or you'll not get to the airport. So, But actually, the other part of the story was that it didn't look like I was in Europe. The grass was this high, buildings were devastated, there hadn't been any agriculture in that, in that, in, in that place for a long, long time. 
you put mines in a field, you're not just killing people, you're actually killing the next generation as well, because, because you're stunting um, economic, you know, economic development, agricultural, <coughs> uh, agricultural development. The other thing that for the developing world is important for this kind of stability in terms of, of health, the nirvana that we're looking, all looking for, is that to get the right kind of medical intervention, the right kinds of changes, you also need stable governance. International resources will pour into places that have stable governance, and they will not pour into places that do not. So this is, a, this is another, another major issue. Then, of course, there are um, critiques of the colonialism that goes with modernization theory that underpins epidemiological transition theory. Avilas has written about this, that epidemiological transition is a phased process. They go through, societies go through traditional stages and end up being modern. So the process is one of a modernization. It is a homogenizing process that pr produces tendencies towards convergence of all societies. It's the McDonaldization, if you will, of societies. That there'll be a constant product, a constant way of, 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 of dealing with things. It's a Europeanization or, or Americanization process. It's also a progressive process and the idea that in the long term it should be desirable because it is progressive. Um, now a colonizer's model of the world is one that natu Europe naturally progresses and modernizes. Non-Europe naturally remains stagnant, unchanging, traditional. The basic course of European progress is in the European mind and therefore we should export ideas from the European mind for the progress or modernization of non-Europe and the diffusion of innovative and progressive ideas. Of course, I'm sure everybody in this room wants <coughs> things to get better for everybody, but you need to think very carefully about how you do that. It's not simply an export of European ideas or European ways of, of doing things. The other thing is that all of this process suggests, demands energy. And that's another one of the aspects of stuff that we need to, need to consider. But the period that saw rapid increases in prosperity also, was also the period in which, um, in which energy consumption started to escalate dramatically. And of course the countries that have the highest GDP, highest incomes, also the biggest consumers of, of energy. So energy is, is also one significant aspect of stuff. Now Japan. Um, Japan was a traditional society before World War II. Modernizing, yes, but really all of the transitions in terms of, in terms of health, nutrition and so on happened in Japan after World War II, not like the rest of Europe. So Japan is interesting because things happen differently in Japan. Um, one of the things that led to economic prosperity in Japan was actually an energy kickstart that actually... Uh, at the time when uh, oil was comparatively cheap, it was a time when, 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 when Japan started to industrialize rap rapidly. It was a period where you know, there was, in a sense, a big energy subsidy to expanding Japan's economy. Now, of course, people worked very hard. People were totally devoted to developing the country. Um, and, and I don't underestimate that at all. But it's unlikely that any other country would be in the same position now with having an energy subsidy to be able to do the same, the same kind of thing. Now, life expectancy has increased in most countries, apart from some African nations. 
Life expectancy patterns took a dip in countries like Namibia, Kenya, Botswana, South Africa, Zimbabwe, Lesotho through the early 2000s. This was largely because of HIV-AIDS. HIV-AIDS made a big change to, to, to life expectancy and demographic profiles in those places. What's changing now is as HIV-AIDS and with antiretroviral therapy, HIV-AIDS is becoming more like a chronic condition, then these things are also, are also changing. But all it tells you is that this idea of, uh, of constant improvement is not necessarily true. <coughs> this is one emerging infection. Malaria resurgence is another resurging infection. There are many, many other resurging infections. So the picture is far from static and is far from linear. And I think that's the major take-home message from this morning. Thank you.